In February this year, Russia invaded Ukraine. Now more than half a year later, the war continues, and recently with a new momentum in the shape of Ukrainian counteroffensives in the east and south. But what does the war actually mean for Danish and European security? This is the key question in the report after the peace, if the film, published here at the Center for Military Studies. In this series, I talk to the authors to better understand the consequences of the war. Today, Maria Maltsu, senior researcher at the Center for Military Studies, on deterrence. So, uh, Maria, welcome and thanks for participating. Thanks for having me. In our report, uh, you've written a chapter on the on the consequences of, of the Ukraine war for deterrence in the in the Baltic Sea region. Can you tell us a bit about what the war in Ukraine means for for deterrence in Europe and and perhaps particularly in the Baltic Sea region? Sure. Well, I guess the deterrence uh, as a result uh, of this war that is still ongoing uh, for NATO highlights that this war has been going on uh, for a longer while than uh, you know just from February 2022. So NATO started to take deterrence more seriously again, actually, indeed, in response to the annexation of Crimea by Russia already in uh, 2014. So the first decisions in terms of making deterrence something uh, uh, serious or making deterrence great again for NATO, so to speak, uh, um, actually were taken uh, in 2016 at the Warsaw Summit, uh, and then, you know, the the eastern flank of NATO first, uh, including then the Baltic states and Poland, uh, really saw something that uh, actually was more palpable in terms of the Allied presence than had been there before. Um, and uh, this has only become more important, more relevant, and also more sort of buttressed as a result of of the uh, sort of current phase of the war, so to speak, or the the full-fledged aggression that Russia launched against Ukraine uh, February this year, meaning that uh, basically uh, what is being uh, spoken about now and also the first steps taken in that direction is not any more sort of deterrence in in the slightly more perhaps abstract terms or, or symbolic terms as it was in between, say, you know, 2017 to 2022 in the region uh, of the Baltic Sea space. But uh, what is being spoken about uh, and, and acted upon is the idea of the forward defense, which effectively, sort of in deterrence language, of course, means that, that we are uh, talking more seriously about uh, deterrence uh, uh, by denial, via actually making the defense uh, units that are there more credible. Okay. So it stands in, in contrast to something that came before perhaps deterrence by, by, by punishment or what was the kind Basically, of idea Basically, I think the idea before, and, you know, the jury remains out, right, mm-hmm. because this, this boundary is always very, um, very uh, flux or, or moving and, and, and flexible. But basically, yes, the idea before was that, uh, well, you know, we, of course, signal that the alliance does take it seriously. We put the forces there, but the forces were very much tripwire. And now the question was that in terms of the tripwire being able to do the deed, so to speak, in case of an actual aggression, in case of actually having to defend, 
perhaps was not that credible as would be, you know, a much more sort of thought through, more systematic defense solution that is being spoken about now. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, of course, there would be massive troops because, you know, as ever with deterrence in a sort of sensitive uh, region, the issue is that you also don't overdo it so that you would kick in, um, you know, uh, the security dilemma for the other uh, party, which, of course, anyway, if we look at what Russia is is doing and speaking about, has kicked in long ago. So mm. I'm not even sure whether it actually matters that much. Okay. Um, okay. So, so what? How can how can can we actually see that this change has happened? Is it something that's already on the ground, or is it more mm. in the political signaling? No. What has been going on? Well, I mean, first of all, the decisions at the moderate summit, uh, and you know, the 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 sort of open declaration, the, in that sense also the watershed moment uh, for NATO, again, to actually identify very clearly Russia as you know, one of the biggest uh, threats uh, to it uh, at the moment. So you know, this is already sort of the, the masks are down and, and uh, well, perhaps not the knives out yet, but you know, people are, are, are calling uh, things as, as they see it. Which is, you know, in diplomacy, not uh, unimportant, obviously. And then we have uh, decisions that have been actually gradually being taken already throughout the 2022 in terms of generally buttressing the eastern flank. I mean, there have been these these numbers uh, in the... um, Uh, battle groups that are currently, uh, you know, in the Baltic states and Poland that have been uh, sort of uh, upped, uh, and then you know the new uh, new units, uh, new troops brought uh, to Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria and Slovakia. So, so this is sort of the whole of of the eastern flank uh, uh, manned mm-hmm. in that sense by Allied forces. So these are the real steps, and of course they are, you know, still being processed as we speak mm-hmm. right it's 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 very much a sort of moving situation and i think some you know things are still being discussed in terms of how to do it best because as ever with allied deterrence of course you would have mm, you know there there is a military component and there is a political component mm-hmm. and and these things Uh, don't always necessarily perfectly align, mm. nor do the interests of the alliance or the powerful, the you know, patron states mm. in the alliance and those who receive mm. uh, the help, those in need, so mm. to speak, such as the Baltic states. Mm. Nor do they perfectly align. Mm. Right? Obviously, you know, the Baltic states probably would would most uh, want you know some sort of permanent presence, mm. which is you know not necessarily likely forthcoming no. anytime soon. Yeah. Okay, so these are, of course, complicated matters. As we record this, uh, the most recent development is these gas leaks mm-hmm. uh, close to the Danish island uh, Bornholm, which, of course, also underlines this. It's very much a, a both complicated but also a moving topic. Um, from your perspective, for, for a country like Denmark and also its its allies, which are kind of the, the which kinds of challenges uh, lie ahead? What what are what are the most important things when when we also look ahead at this? Yeah, this is this is of course, you know, on the one hand, it highlights how uh, how uh, aggression can take obviously many forms, mm-hmm. right? And this is a volatile situation. I mean, sure. all the usual uh-huh. usual qualifiers apply, mm-hmm. uh, and caveats uh, in the sense that we don't really know. But you know, the sort of informed people tell us that it has to be an action of a state actor mm-hmm. uh, in order to to actually, you know, 
even even occur the way it has occurred. So so you know we we of course can guess whose ears are behind uh, behind this thing. But it tells us, I think, for NATO, one big thing, which uh, already the Ukraine war has been uh, highlighting uh, in, in manifold ways, which is that effectively we are dealing with a state that behaves like a terrorist, meaning that they use tools that um, decent uh, members of the international society don't consider uh, as you know, comilfo, mm. uh, that they would not use. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, you know, their strength and right. our weakness mm. in that sense. That, uh, you know, just like we uh, in the West broadly conceived would not think that this kind of war is even possible, this sort of blatant aggression, uh, you know, the the uh, readiness to endanger critical infrastructures of the kind or, you know, as also has been an important dimension of the war to actually, uh, you know, win allies in the global south via, you know, using the the sort of uh, uh, food shortage uh, cards. I mean, these are all the tools that uh, we are simply not used to anymore and that we consider so uh, incredible and so unbelievable and immoral mm. so it's it's very difficult mm. to to think you know what can actually we do mm-hmm. uh, against that sort of uh, mm-hmm. approach and you know all the more how can we deter mm-hmm. something dissuade something like this in the chapter you talk a little about but this balance and act between deterrence and then something else can you can you perhaps elaborate a little bit more on that what what do you mean that also in terms of the long term mm-hmm. Um, approach to to Russia, and this is also something that, of course, uh, is uh, well exciting to do right now. But also, it feels a bit futile because mm-hmm. things are so much yet in flux. Right? Mm-hmm. We we you know they are changing effectively every day. Mm-hmm. I think the key thing is you know as with the deterrence in general that uh, of course nobody really would want to return to to the state of things uh, and the sort of height of tensions as they were in the Cold War. And, you know, arguably we do actually quickly approach already this mm. this this point you know, when it comes, for instance, to nuclear tensions. Mm-hmm. But um, the main thing is in terms uh, of, you know, balancing deterrence and, uh, and dialogue. I mean, these things, of course, are you know, always balanced, whether or not we see them in the sort of public diplomacy mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there always are, you know, outreach uh, attempts, uh, regardless of what is going on, uh, you know, on the ground and 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 when the gun speaks, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, what we need to realize when we talk about, you know, there has to be also thinking uh, ahead in terms of what is the political goal of all this. Mm-hmm. We had to realize that perhaps, uh, you know, the status quo uh, or, or, you know, the old world mm-hmm. uh, as we knew it, uh, no matter how sort of contained and and uh, unhappy we were mm-hmm. with uh, uh, the way Russia increasingly was behaving, right, vis-a-vis its neighbors, you know, in the immediate region and beyond, mm-hmm. probably is not anymore within our reach, is not coming back. So so we might need to think a bit more boldly and we might need to think about all sorts of options in terms of, okay, you know, at one point uh, Putin will go, right? 
Uh, it might not happen immediately, um, but uh, it will happen at some point. Uh, what will be then the next Russia okay. that we have to deal with? But I think one immediate moment that we need to consider is is uh, is the fact that we have currently effectively a state uh, that has been publicly uh, advocating and practicing uh, genocidal war. So what do we do? With a you know state genocidaire mm. who uh, is threatening nuclear weapons mm. after this okay. immediate war, that might also lead to, to to a bit at least to my to my to my final question. Um, so, if you think about Terence, what are you what are you currently most interested in? What are we what don't you think we're paying enough attention to in this debate, both mm-hmm. political debate but perhaps also scholarly debate mm-hmm. on on the matter? Well, I think it's it's super intriguing, of course, and you know this is also part of my my new research project, which uh, tries to think of uh, deterrence uh, as a very ritualized practice. But of course, it's also very interested in, and I am finding interesting, the different uh, sort of cultural practices of deterrence and cultural uh, readings of what even amounts uh, to deterrence, and obviously then also different tools of of doing deterrence and and doing defense so so this is certainly you know this this political dimension of deterrence also uh, our sometimes rather curious attachment to it even though it seems one of these most elusive Um, necessary fictions mm. at times, right? Because it's so difficult to put a finger on it. It's also such a flexible a, a term because policymakers, of course, uh, put uh, quite uh, a lot of stuff under uh, the umbrella label of deterrence. Mm. So, you know, it can mean anything from from uh, restraining uh, the opponent of doing something and, and trying to sort of prevent things happening, but also deterring by the actual use of force, which, you know, is actually quite the wide spectrum, mm. come to think of it, right? Mm. So um, I think the the sort of political meaning of deterrence, uh, the political meaning and execution of deterrence for different players in the world, uh, and not least also for you know the takers, so to speak, those who are the playing ground of deterrence rather than uh, than the main. Uh, players themselves, as we usually have had in deterrence theory, is one of these intriguing aspects. Another one, perhaps, is uh, is uh, the fact that you know, obviously, the world is not anymore the the easy world of the Cold War, where you have roughly two big players. Mm-hmm. So, with China, you know, we will have a different sort of uh, model mm-hmm. emerging um, with with at least three. Mm. Uh, big players, mm. uh, which of course raises all sorts of new questions and 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 asks us to push the theory forward. Okay. It's both interesting and, and and important stuff. Maria, a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Niels. And that was Maria Marksu, senior researcher at the Center for Military Studies, telling us about deterrence policy and practice in light of the Ukraine war. You can read more on the report after the peace. Eftafan, which can be downloaded at the Center for Military Studies webpage. You can also follow the Center's work on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. My name is Nils Bjørnsen. Thank you for listening.